Welcome to Mythic, a podcast where we explore meaningful living through the power of myth. I'm your host, Boston Blake. Hello, and welcome to Mythic. Thank you for listening. My download numbers have gone much higher recently. I don't know what's happened, especially with the um, infrequency of the podcast, but uh, whoever is out there, thank you for listening, and uh, please find me on social media. Uh, I'd love to have a conversation around the podcast and learn who's listening and why. My guest today is the brilliant and talented Dr. Monica Modi. She is a poet and a writer and a theorist and an educator, and her work crosses borders and genres. She was born in Ranchi, India, and now lives in San Francisco, where she got her PhD in East-West Psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies. She also holds an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of Notre Dame, and a Bachelor of Arts and Laws from the National Law School of India University. Her doctoral dissertation received the 2020 Corey Award for Best Dissertation in Women and Mythology, awarded by the Association for the Study of Women and Mythology. Monica's poetry has appeared in numerous literary journals. Her critical work advances Earth-based and decolonial feminist worldviews. She teaches as core faculty at the PhD program in Visionary Practice and Regenerative Leadership at Southwestern College Santa Fe, and as adjunct faculty at the School of Consciousness and Transformation at CIIS. She has studied and circled with elders, wisdom keepers, and medicine holders from many earth-based and indigenous traditions, developing an interconnected worldview rooted in ancestral healing practices. And in this conversation with Monica, you're going to hear the relationship between myth and colonialism and decolonization. So let's get to it. Here is Dr. Monica Modi. I'm so glad to be taking this time with you to talk about myth and story. Myth and story. What do you want people to know about you and your relationship to myth and story? You know, it's interesting because as an artist, my primary role so far has been as a poet and not as a narrative poet poet who really operates in experimental registers and works with rhythm and beat and music and metaphor. So it's interesting that especially when I was working on my doctoral dissertation, I found myself really circling back to this gap that I had in my own expressive context like that of narrative. My academic work then in some ways became about locating where the gap, the breakage in story and storytelling happened for me in a community, a collective and personal context. That feels like a very resonant place to begin um, for a long time. Why this was not something that that was very facile or easy for me to step into. So it was difficult for you to step into narrative, step into storytelling. And so this was the gap in your ability to express poetically. Did I understand that correctly? Poetically or as a writer Hmm. too, as I kept going through the research tunnels, I'm sure you understand these research tunnels where they take you, right? 
It's a never-ending Byzantine <laughs> conduit of information from every direction piling on top, and somehow ideas get put into words on paper. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Been there. And what if? <laughs> what about that engine inside of yourself, which does not, will not allow you to stop from going inside that Byzantine? <laughs> right. Yep. Yes. So as I was doing that, I started making certain connections, like my. Um, family, my mother's side of the family had moved from what is now Pakistan into what is now India at the time of the partition. And I started realizing that there was a way in which this whole episode of the partition of India, which is in some ways, it's a horrific, it's part of this, this something really big and tragic that happened in South Asia. And then it was buried. It was buried collectively until pretty recently where a few people are beginning to talk about it and, and addressing it. What is it that happened? Well, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, they were part of the British Empire. Yes. In the colonized period. And right as the British were exiting the area, they created this, I'm giving you a very simple and reductive version of this, but of there was a, an artificial line that was drawn, creating three separate countries. So that region, that area, which was imaginally one unified, suddenly had political demarcations. And they were East Pakistan and West Pakistan. East Pakistan later on became Bangladesh. But these two were given to the Muslims. This is what colonization did in many parts of the world. They were operating on a divide and rule policy. So in India, the division happened specifically along religious lines. And the, co the colonial project had started instituting that, had, had really started emphasizing the divisions from the beginning of the 20th century. So by the time the partition happened, there were antagonisms that ran deep in the collective psyche, not for everyone, but there was definitely enough of an atmosphere of fear, collective fear that was created that even though India identified itself as secular, it, it still was more, I don't know, feasible as a word, but many Muslims felt they would want to move from India to Pakistan, and many Hindus felt it would be safer for them to move from, from Pakistan to India. So these lines actually, they created something, they rooted divisions. They changed the national myth. This is the biggest mass migration in the history of the world. And it's surprising to me that more people don't know about it, but it's not surprising when I think about what happened in the post-colonial period, especially in India, where we were so busy as a nation trying to be modern that we swept all the pain and the trauma and the wound under the carpet. Mm. We didn't even discuss it. And that became a part of my family wound too. I was like, oh, what happened? We are, one part of my family lost its lands, lost its history, lost family members, and there was no talk about this. So that's the rupture in narrative that I realized was going on. Oh, wow. I'm just sitting with that. This conversation is happening with myth and story in the background. When you lose connection with narrative, you lose connection with 
the land with history with with a sense of place and family and that's hearing it so personally that really brings it home it's one thing to have this as an abstract concept mm -hmm. and conversation it's something very different because it did happen so quickly this is not something that happened over centuries it's something that happened in a matter of a decade yeah yeah i think the movements the migration was pretty compressed maybe over a couple of years two three years and yeah. wow yeah this is making the quote that started this conversation you said to stake your claim over culture your cultural practice you have to tell your stories ultimately mythology is about place and belonging and as you've now engaged in this in in storytelling as access to you know filling these gaps filling this gap what have you discovered when i wrote that i hadn't confronted this lacuna i think I can only like reconstruct what was really playing for me when playing up for me when I wrote that. But the other piece of this is that in this birth, in this lifetime, I'm here in the body of a woman. And in South Asia, in particular, the whole terrain of mythology more and more has been usurped by people who are very xenophobic, nationalistic, fundamentalist. So there's this context of op oppression. And it's not unrelated to what I discovered later because through the course of my doctoral research, because in fact, the f colonization and nationalism are really related. There's that. But there's also something about the power of the imagination, the power of retrieval. And that's where when we talk about something like story and, and myth, they're, I mean, they're potent forces, even when there is a lot of hurt, even when there is a lot of rupture, there are still always going to be ways to connect the pieces, even through the fragments. In my academic work, I talked about re-mythologizing this idea that we can gather together the pieces. And, and, and again, this is, I think, for, for women in patriarchy and in, in, in a patriarchal context where, but also like patriarchal, colonial, there's so many layers of capitalism, there's like layers and layers of, of oppression, right? Like certain bodies, certain voices, certain experiences, certain ways of knowing have always been cast aside, have always been othered. So this is not new practice right like you as someone who's been studying myth you probably know this intimately right there's this way in which we want to reach out to whatever myth is whatever mythology is it's this it, it's we're really talking about something that emerged from an ancestral context mm. Like it came from who, who was the first, who were the authors of the first myth, the first myths? So were they the shamans? Were they the medicine people and the, the seekers and the seers and the, the oracles? Who were they? And what was really going on there when these myths became the codes that contain so much information about cultures? So I'm 
in some ways, I ardently believe that these codes are not lost. We just have to figure out how they can heal and re restore us today. Because the, yeah, like colonialism, capitalism, patriarchy, they're always going to try to take over that space. But we still have something in us, and that's linked to our, you know, creative capacities. Oh, there's so much in there. Stepping back, that the image of fragments that you laid down, it made me think of the of uh, kintsugi, the Japanese art of repair. Yeah. Where you have the the pieces of a shattered a shattered pot, and then you put it in a mold, and you fill in the gaps with gold, and then it has structure. It's use. It's usable again. It's a pot, but it is something different from what it was. It still has all of the elements of the original but also something else. And it's stronger, more unique, and its history is then included. That fracturing is a part of its story. And I, I'm now thinking about how myth moves through centuries and how uh, myth is always reflecting the culture that it comes from. But the same stories a few centuries apart might be very different stories. Hera is a goddess that very much interests me in Greek mythology. And one of the things that interests me is that Hera's temples are older than Zeus's in that region. And so this starts to suggest that her reverence goes back further. The stories that we hear today, Hera is one, a one-note wonder. She's like a goddess of jealousy which strikes me as insane. Uh, if you take that same story, she could also become a goddess of enforcement of contracts, something more like Freya, that she is the punisher of broken vows, and then is a power goddess who is standing up to patriarchy. She may not be able to challenge it directly, but she can attempt to contain its impact. The point is that mythology, how we tell the same stories, you can reconstitute those fragments in different ways. What, what are some myths that are on your mind right now? Oh, that's a great question. But, and, and I also want to quickly say, this is the, you touched on two important points that I, I resonate with so much. The idea that when you bring the fragments together, it's something new. The, the gold that connects them allows something else to. And what is that gold? And, and yeah, the idea that myths change over time. And you were talking about Hera. Do you know the work of Mariha Gimbutas, this archaeomythologist? I do not. Please educate me. So Mariha Gimbutas was a more central figure to in archaeology and then when she started making controversial claims that there was in the western civilization before the gods the male gods became part of the the dominant way of culture there was a different past exactly what you're saying that there were feminine goddesses and matriarchal societies that were peaceful and that centered mutual nurture and cooperation. When she started making these claims, she was slowly marginalized and her work is only now being remembered. But I think, again, as a woman who this idea of uh, reclaiming myths 
of the goddesses from their tellings, which again cast them only in such a narrow and almost demonic light sometimes, or not demonic, but they're either shrews or like this one note wonder that you mentioned. I love, for instance, the, the myth of Medusa. Right. One of my favorite stories and very complicated and problematic. Yeah. And, and Athena's role in that, what it does to the relationship of, between women. So for me, part of Medusa's myth is also, I'm going to also say, Elaine Sixu, who came in and talked about Medusa's laughter in, in her book. And she used that to tell women, we have to write, we have to take back this narrative space back for ourselves because we are part of that i think that's a very fertile space like that these mythic figures are not just outside they're not just operating in you know this objective mythic field but they're really affecting us and interacting with us and that's in in that mutual in the space of mutual interaction is where we can make changes happen right what what is the book you're referencing about medusa it's called the laugh of medusa the laugh of medusa yeah I, oh yeah, and, yeah i mean i will link to that in the show notes and i will read it myself i have been there's a another myth podcast it's called let's talk about myths baby and the hostess <laughs> is is Liv albert and she's amazing and she is a hardcore defender of medusa and I really love her take. And it has me slipping into the imaginal around Medusa and specifically Ovid's version of Athena transforming her as retribution. And I thought, what if, what would it, what could a story be like where Athena is actually empowering Medusa? What could this look like where Medusa never wants to be touched by a man the way that she has been abused by this god and what might be a where, where could a sister action be in here if these goddesses if athena cannot go against the king of the gods but she can somehow affect this path but then it and then perseus become the enemy Perse, perseus becomes this man who puts an end to this immortal creature's life maybe as retribution against athena it's a story idea, but this is what happens when a myth comes up. And when I was a kid, I loved this story. When I was a kid, it was just the hero Perseus killing the monster Medusa. She's big and snaky and ugly. And why shouldn't she die? That's the thinking of a seven-year-old. <laughs> right. Kind of creepy. And then you get to this point, wait a minute. She was just minding her own business and dude comes in with a sword and lops her head off. So let's unpack that what's going on what tradition is being upheld and how could that story be revisioned anyway i'm just playing with ideas here but that's a potency like that you can revision it and and people and so many writers i'm thinking of do you know the book circe by madeline miller i've read it three times i love oh, it wow. so much i love madeline miller and yes. the song of achilles is my other favorite this is happening where people are really going there and interacting with these figures. But I want to also take a step back. So I grew up in a different country, a different context, right? Like a different like mythic context. And I was a voracious reader when I was a child. For me, the distinction between reality and books and imagination, it, it, it was very hard for me to make that distinction in some ways, because 
I spent so much time in books and with books, but also the children's magazines and books and that I was reading in Hindi and in English. There is this mutability in the mythology in India. I find it very hard to pinpoint this is the story. This is the story. Because again, there's like, it's possible that a thousand different versions of the same myth exist from region to region, from sub-community to sub-community. And that, that diversity, of course, is what is at um, risk right now under the nationalist government. But, but because I grew up there, for me, sometimes I get very restless. I'm like, oh, I don't even want to, like the bones of the mainstream narrative. I don't even want to operate within that. Mm. So the, there's a poem that I wrote recently, and I wrote it for, an, for a project called An Exaltation of Goddesses. And the project was, in fact, commemorating Mariha Gimbutas's work. And even though Gimbutas's work is centered more on West, Western Europe, the project itself invited 13 international poets from all over the world. And so the figure, the deity, the spirit I interacted with was Saraswati. And Saraswati in Indian mythological slash religious context is a very, it's, she's presented as a pretty demure, civilized, and she's wearing like silk saris, and she has this graceful, gentle demeanor. And as I was doing my research to write this poem, I started realizing she gets her name from a river which vanished and the river itself is like the Hindu Rashtra, the, the nationalists in India are using <laughs> that river in a way that I don't at all buy uh, into. But at the same time, that river, if you look at the descriptions of the river, she's portrayed as wild, unbridled. She is just like storming down, storming through the lands and creating new pathways. And so for me, I was like, I'm going to really break apart the bones of that story where Saraswati has to be docile, demure, and has to move with, with, yeah, with, with this feminine grace, which leaves the wild and the completely natural, uninhibited aspects of her outside. So I started with her as a river. And I, it's, for me, I think that was so freeing. Saraswati is wild. Because again, Saraswati is the wisdom goddess, like Sophia in, in the Western pantheon. So that wisdom has to look a certain way. No. For me, the roots of it come from nature. The roots of it come from there, that terrain, which is, yeah, lush and yeah. You're speaking to something that is pervasive across pantheons and across religions and mythologies as patriarchy puts these powerful forces, these powerful feminine forces, whether it's a river or an earth goddess or reproductive capacity itself, it becomes May, it becomes reduced and made demure and fitting underneath the patriarchal umbrella. And of course, these are wild forces of nature. They're recognized as goddesses, very likely 
because they were untamable. They exactly. were mysterious and something we couldn't control. We were at the mercy of. But then they get told into stories. They get turned into human narratives where so often the woman-ness, the woman identity, I don't even want to call it femininity. That's not right. But the woman, they become embodied as a woman and then in a patriarchal role. And yet, and then you tell me this story about connecting with the wildness of the river itself. Mm -hmm. She's still under there. Saraswati right. is, who's wearing that sari? This is <laughs> not someone to be fucked with. Sorry. <laughs> so fun to play with these. When you were a child, what were your favorite stories growing up and where did you find them? Oh gosh, I was so polyamorous with my world of stories. Uh -huh. And that, that question is still something that, I mean, I'm never able to answer that question. Favorite? No. But I'll tell you, I'm so grateful that there were these repositories of myth and folktale that, that were published, being published at the time. So there were these books, these magazines, children's magazine in India, Nandan and gosh, Chandra. I'm forgetting the name of that, but there was a Bal Chitrakatha. Like, sorry to anyone who's from India and who's <laughs> listening to this. <laughs> you forgot the names, but there were these children's magazines which would come out either once a month or twice a month, and they would have these stories. Amar Chitrakatha is the name that I'm trying to think of, eternal, never dying. Chitra is picture. So these are picture stories. For me, that was one thing that was happening. I was reading. I grew up in a small town, and it was one of the towns in India which actually had a British Council library. So I was reading a lot of British books for children also. And then, this is around the time when the national television of India, which was Doordarshan, there was only one channel at the time. It had just started broadcasting Ramayan, which again, there's so much analysis that has been done of how that was a project of knitting the nation together and how this one version then continued to supersede all other versions of that myth. But that's what we would do every Sunday, we would all sit around the television and watch it. Remember, I grew up in a very small town. I was picking up all these pieces from also the conversations that we would have in the communities but that my parents were a part of and where again, storytelling would happen in a different way. It was rich in some ways. And also I think again, it had a very narrow version of femininity, but that's like more um it doesn't really answer your question but it does and these picture books that picture stories i'm imagining something akin to comic books something you named three levels of story that mm. were impacting you there are these picture books that you're reading and consuming for entertainment and the library which you were drawn to there is a dialogue happening with your parents and storytelling is happening in a very human way, people telling stories as in a cultural way. But then also this very interesting, the Ramayan through a single network spreading a national story. The United States, our version of that was we had three networks that all told us variations on the same <laughs> news narrative before cable. And 
it did feel like a more cohesive culture at that time. There was a more cohesive America when the narrative was more tightly contained. More viewpoints add more complexity. Mm -hmm. Did I miss anything in there? Were there movies that you were seeking out or other types of entertainment narrative? One thing I do want to mention, as you were talking, I realized there was actually another class of stories that was in there, which is stories from Russia. So interestingly enough, because India and Russia were very close at that time. This is where we're still talking about, I think when it was still USSR, right before the are right around the time when yeah the break the breakup happened so, so early mid 1980s yeah yeah mm -hmm. exactly so because of the close connections politically between india and ussr there were all these like books russian books so they were also feeding my imagination so i think even though we had the national through line which just that that through line had just started coming in via mass media this is the role that television played globally in some ways, capturing the imagination and saying, this is the only way to do story. But because the cauldron was so already in, in some ways rich with complexity, which I think is a very post-colonial phenomenon in some ways. It's the idea that you're finding yourself in a society where there's many different versions of how to be human and what the world is when when these exist in, in such a complicated way. I think that really yeah liberates your imagination in a way. I agree. It becomes pantheistic instead of monotheistic. One one path to expression versus many paths. Right. Finding other ways to identify. While we're in this particular realm, is there any myth or fairy tale or story from any place in your life that has had a particularly powerful impact on you? I remember when I first um, saw Sita Sings the Blues. It's a movie by, do you know that movie, Nina Paley? No. no. <laughs> I loved th that movie because it's, yeah, it just takes Sita's myth and opens it up and puts it in a different context and makes her a blues singer and gives her agency, gives her a voice. This is something that I know it's been because many of the figures, feminine figures in Indian mythology are also are, are pretty, again, docile, are pretty linear in some ways, or they are operating mostly not for their own ends not as their own agents, but on behalf of men, to free men, to help out men, things like that. So I think this, I know it's when I look at the work of writers from India, women writers from India, either now or, or in the last, I think, since independence, right? Since the Indian, Indian independence, it remains really valid. It remains like this through line. We want that. We want to reclaim these figures. We, we want these feminine figures. We want these women to be more than how they were written down, how they were textualized, because it's in the oral traditions of the myths that they're really alive and they have more agency. You have so many different versions of Sita already, right? Like in, in the oral myths, but it's when they're written down, when we started telling stories, but maybe it wasn't the telling stories, but maybe it was by who 
was writing down these stories that some of the, the, the deformities started happening. There's something really poetic in that too, just in that once you write something down, you capture it and contain it in a frozen form. Right. When you're telling a story, we tell stories for particular reasons. There's, you don't just start talking, maybe I do sometimes, but generally if you're bringing up a story, it's to teach or to explain or describe, and it's relevant to that moment. And it, and these, if we're pulling on myth to do it, we're pulling on great, deep, ancient imagery and archetype. We're going straight for the soul. When you write it down, it's running through the intellect. This may not be true with poetry, but it does have an intellectual component, but it's a soulful practice the way I hear it anyway. My point is, there's something about freezing a myth in time and freezing these characters in time that ultimately contains and controls them. And maybe both the men and the women, that these are wild forces that somehow humans, by writing them down, they want to have some kind of dominion over them as opposed to embodying them. It's so interesting what you said about stories being told for a particular reason. That changed when we started telling stories for entertainment. Yes. And that's that's part of modernity's myth. Again, we're talking or come back mm. to the myth of modernity, which removes the sacred as something that's needed to connect a community together, to tie a community together, to give purpose to human life. And also theater, there's again, in different parts of India, there've always been regional forms of ritual theater, right? And these, this ritual theater, which tells of the mythic stories that are particular that, to that region, they're not supposed to be entertaining. They're supposed to enact very significant moments in that culture's timeline. So they could be seasonal moments. For instance, in the villages of Himalayas, they enact the goddess coming home, coming back to her father's um, house at particular moments. And there's like theater, but that's also tied into the harvest season. So it could be seasonal but it, it could also be related to rites of passage. And we've lost that in secular modernity, in colonial modernity, we've lost so much of what it was to knit the community together to, through the stories. It's such an excellent point. And one of the things that's really interesting, this superhero movie phenomenon, which I am really, I, I was enjoying, I am still enjoying it. I am a comic book kid. So there, this is what happens when the nerds grow up and get the power and the money. And it's, but they are not of a particular place. They play with big ideas, but they're all the same note. You do get interesting things that happen with something like Black Panther and Wonder Woman that really do empower marginalized groups and really make a point of reimagining a world that's different. But I think in general, and it's not just the superhero movies, it's movies in general. It's how do we make the most money possible on a global scale? So what is going to be palatable to the United States, China, India, Russia, and offend as few people as possible? And because America does drive this machine, it 
all has this underlying very American machismo, <laughs> for lack of a better word. I'm just thinking, yeah, that's something is lost when, when a story is not tied to a place, when it's not emerging out of a place. And this is back to what you said, mythology is about place and belonging. Yeah, yeah. And this whole Americanization and globalization, it's, of course, it's a very real phenomenon. We, it's really affected many of the minor stories and the minor myths. Even right here in, in the US, how many indigenous myths do we know about? Right? Local place-based myths. You know where they went? Bugs Bunny cartoons. The, Tasmani the Tasmanian Devil, the Trickster, <laughs> the Southwest imagery, there are, their local folklore is in the old Looney Tunes cartoons. I and this is, I, it just, it hit me recently mm. when I was, my father is deeply involved in the Lakota Sioux traditions and has a wealth of knowledge. And he was telling me some stories about Coyote, the trickster character. And I'm like, this is Wiley Coyote. This is the Coyote Roadrunner situation. And I started looking I'm like, this holds up these stories that they did not have a written tradition. Native American, we call it folklore, mythology. It was an oral tradition. And now we don't even have the languages to tell the stories. The languages have been lost, so many of them. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the loss of language and the loss of knowledge are, are really tied together in some ways. But I do want to mention, and it's interesting because I don't want to also diss the written form because <laughs> no, no. it's so important. We talk about preservation. So a couple of years ago, I, I was at the book launch of um, this book called When a Mountain Was Made. And it's a collection of uh, stories by Greg Saris. And I'm forgetting he's from the, I think he's from California and the Sonoma State. Again, the beautiful stories. But what happens is, even as he was reading the stories, I found my brain getting reconfigured. Because again, that these stories are like, even if they made it to Looney Tunes or whatever, but they didn't go with the worldview intact. That's Not what got lost. And also like there's this beautiful book. There, there are a couple of presses in particular in India, which are really trying to get the indigenous stories in the indigenous myths written down. There's a book called, I think it's called The Nightlife of Trees, which is all about how, yeah, it's all about trees and it's about the, how trees come alive at night in a different way when than um, in in the daytime so it's so important right that we don't just rely on them the main if we are interested in myth then how do we even broaden which myths we find ourselves in conversation with because they are tied into worldview and i think that's where the fact that we find ourselves in the predicament we are globally comes in because what a lot of the hollywood superhero stories are doing they are talking about some real perils that the world is facing right now but of course they are decontextualizing it and they are pulling out some elements and absolutely they are um they're doing it to make money there's something real very wrong with the world right now why is it that these 
corporate forces, these multi-billionaires? Like, why is it that they're getting to dictate our world in a certain way? Where do the answers come from? And yes, maybe Hollywood has some answers. And, and they won't be enough. And that's what complexity theory also says. The answers will have to come from that place of complexity. No single individual or entity or group will ever have all the answers. What is something that, that you believe to be true in the world that you just can't prove? Let me start with a story and then I'll maybe answer that question. <laughs> so, I was writing this chapter on voice for my dissertation, where I talk a lot about narrative and I talk a lot about the stories that have been cut off and the ancestral relationships that have been cut off. And I was researching this place where my nani, where my grandmother's family came from in, in what is now Pakistan. And the place is Dera Ghazi Khan. So I was, you know, looking at Wikipedia, I was trying to study the geography and trying to see what kind of mountains were there and things like that. Like really trying to immerse myself in, in that region to activate my imagination. I didn't know what was going on. I was <laughs> doing my research. So definitely in those tunnels. And, and then I came across this one reference in an entry about the mountains in that area, that this witch called Tushita legend says, still lives on those mountains. And somehow, you know how it is when you get grabbed, you don't even know why, but I was entranced with Tushita. So I was like, I need to know everything I can about Tushita. So I did my, I did my Google trawling and I'm very good at that. And that was the only sentence I found in some 50 places, but I didn't find anything else about Tushita. So this search for her and then an imaginal connection with Tushita on the mountain and her relationship with the village and, and her relationship with the women in the village, that became like a 10 page poem. And a few months later, I was uh, going to read that poem at a reading in Oakland. And so I was like, okay, I, I just want to go and check that page again. And it, it was a Wikipedia page. And that entry had been deleted or it was no longer to be found. And I couldn't find that sentence anywhere on the internet after that. Like talking about something extraordinary that really wanted to be known coming through. And I had copied and pasted that, that and that, that sentence is actually in my dissertation. Like so I have the citation, I have the URL, I have everything, but it's gone now. It's only in that artifact, which is my poem, which is why I feel like if there's something behind the curtain that wants to be known, it'll figure out its way even through this technological morass that we're navigating. That Tashita wanted to be preserved, wanted to be kept and heard, right. and then the veil closed. Will you send me a link to that poem? I'll include it in the show notes. I would love to read it. The, it is published, but it's published in a print magazine and it's going to be included in my collection that's coming out in a month or two months, a couple of months. So unfortunately it's not online right now. Then, then give me a link to that publication I'll when it's that. ready and yeah. we'll get that yeah. out there. <laughs> I'm imagining you 
the the you I'm talking to right now and the little girl who was reading those picture books and then also going to the library. To... One of my favorite things to do right even now is to stay up all night reading. And I have to say fantasy and not sci-fi as much, but yeah, fantasy and mythological books remain my favorite. <laughs> but <laughs> there's this awareness that there's something other than this world. I feel like for a while in my 20s, because I was trying to fit in and I was trying to lead the conventional life, I lost the sense of awe and wonder. But the older I grow, I find myself connecting with that childlike sense of, wow, this is our world and that magic more. So I feel like if you had asked me this question 10 years ago, I don't know what I would have said, but now I would say, I feel like a kinship with that child now, like with that sense of wonder. So have you ever experienced a phenomenon that you just can't explain? All the time. <laughs> so part of it is like the more, and, and I really do believe that, right? Like the more we open ourselves to magic and synchronicity, the more we're going to see that. And so Jung's notion of synchronicity, that that really is that connection between different phenomena in the world and that everything in the universe is alive and is trying to talk to us, which of course is a Jungian notion, but also if you look at it from an animist perspective, it goes even deeper. I think I'm opening myself to that lens and to that way of being more and more. And the more I do that, I have that happen. Plus, I actually, a couple of years, two or three years after I started my doctoral program at CIIS, I actually studied, and that was my leap of faith. I started studying with this West African diviner and teacher, Dr. Male Domasome. And I really studied in that cosmology deeply, and I became a diviner in that tradition. So as a diviner, you are you're really sitting in front of the community and saying, I am going to call on the ancestors on your behalf. And, and there's specific technologies by which you do that. So when I'm sitting with people, I've had information come through that I would have no way of knowing. But it's because I've established that context as a diviner. It, it's, it's a job that uh, entails tremendous responsibility. It's not to done, be done lightly at all. So I do not take it lightly. I take it very seriously and ritually. So I've, I've had that happen too, where I really find myself saying something and the other person is, wow, this is accurate. Extraordinary. That's an entire line of conversation. I'd like to, if you're open to it, have another conversation specifically about divining, about what it is to be a diviner. Are you that possibly open fantastic. to that? Yeah. And so my last of these five questions is, when in your life have you experienced ecstasy? Oh, well, dancing remains a big portal of ecstasy for me. I'm not very trustful of disembodied ecstatic practices at all. It's when I started dancing seriously and I started dancing once a week because I was given the information in a ceremony that you have to do this, right? But when I started doing that, I started, it, it changed understanding how the body is one energy field in many energy fields. And I think if we look deeper at ecstasy is not merely about happiness or an elevated expression of that but i think it's it's something that enables you to see the world as um alive 
and connected. Yeah, that's a big one for me. Thank you. It, I really hear that. It, it's interesting The everybody I've asked this question of, I think everyone has said something to do with the body. The answers mm -hmm. have been in the realm of sex and dance and connectedness and drugs, but also, but really it's interesting because the, I think the textbook definition is about getting out of the body is going beyond the body, but everybody seems to be connecting to ecstasy through the body. And yeah, that... Because the body, because we're off the earth, we really are off the earth. Mm -hmm. This is going to be our portal to open up to the universe, not when we leave the body, but through the body. Yes. So. Yes. So as we start to wrap up our conversation here, are there any topics? Is there anything you really want to bring to the table? Just that we have, we really have the capacity to tell the myths that are needed today, not by giving up the old myths, but by really interacting with them, because the oldest myths really do come from that very primal consciousness. And there is a sense of things moving in them, which is very different than the versions of the myths we see today, but we have the capacity to connect to them. That's the beauty of the imaginal. So just mm. go and do it. That's our show for today, Mythies. Thank you so much for listening. And another huge thank you to our guest, Dr. Monica Modi. If you enjoy Mythic, please consider sharing it with a friend or on social media. For more information, additional resources, and to subscribe to our newsletter, visit mythicpodcast.com. Now, I've left Twitter behind, but on TikTok, I'm boston.blake, and my Instagram handle is mythic.coaching. Feel free to contact me with any questions, comments, or requests. This episode was produced and edited by yours truly. The music was composed by Kevin McLeod. Until next time, journey on.